Before we begin today's story, here's a word from a fellow podcaster. Hi, I'm Ellie. And I'm Emma. And this is No Context. It's a podcast where we read fanfiction from fandoms that we are not in. And then we try to guess the plot based on what we read. Candace is the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We started this podcast because we love fanfiction. Yeah, and we wanted to understand the fans and like the culture of different and new fandoms. This has Wattpad energy. <laughs> it does! <laughs> it's an exploration. We are like the Jacques Cousteau's of fanfiction. Deep divers! Deep divers! What's the worst crossover I can come up with naturally in an episode? I John Wick like Death Note. You can find us on all major podcast platforms and on Twitter at Pod No Context. Happy listening! I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I astral projected when you reminded me that Hitalia exists. I think he is the Full Metal Alchemist. Okay. Um, Do you know what that means? Nope. No idea. <laughs> My name is Talia Smith, and you're listening to Season 3 of Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast. There are stories all around. We tell stories every day. We consume books and movies, travel the digital landscape, and we talk to people. How could we connect without stories? I think it's impossible. This season... We explore all of what home can mean through sharing stories with a strong sense of place, love, family, or tradition. Join us for Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast, Season 3. This episode was recorded in Washington, D.C., USA, and Leicester, England, and reminds us of the epic highs and lows of being 13 years old. Enjoy! Hello everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're welcoming back Luke Blaylock. Luke is a 26-year-old Christian comic book fan and musician, proudly born and raised in Leicester, UK. Luke works as a benefit specialist helping people on low income and out of work access social security benefits. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. If you are a avid listener to the podcast, you may remember his episode on Gilgamesh at the very end of season two. You were our season two finale. Yeah, it was a great time. Good episode that was. It definitely was. But we're going to change gears a bit uh, with this episode. Yeah, we're not quite looking at something so grand and uh, super heroic. We're, We're very much going to a more humble place today. Why don't you share some fun facts about our story today? Certainly. So uh, the story of The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend, that's the story we're going to be telling today, was the number one best-selling book of the entire 1980s in the UK. And its sequel, The Growing Pains of Adrian Mole, was the third best-selling book. We're doing a very famous book that nobody's apparently heard of. Uh, also uh fact number two sue townsend the author of the book was so respected by the soviets that she was invited to a uk ussr round table of all the literary greats in 1989 the only woman considered to be a literary great in attendance the more things change 
yeah they, they didn't have a great handle on that i think that's really interesting i didn't even know there was a uk ussr roundtable of literary greats that i think it was new. the way she describes it you get the sense that it was uh the russians idea and um the british who were invited were all the ones who were sort of anti-state and were like oh and it'd be cool to go to russia and then uh it was it was quite a haphazard organized thing oh interesting cool and then do you have one more fact i do um leicester where our story takes place and where the character and the author both lived um is one of britain's most multicultural cities and there's over 70 first languages spoken by the people who live here adrian mole has only been translated into 48 of those languages but that's still more than uh, most books published in Britain. Oh my gosh. So that's where you're from, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was born in the Leicester Royal Infirmary, um, same place that the character goes to get his tonsils removed and same place that the author had her kidney transplant. And I've lived here for 23 out of the 26 years of my life. Wow, so... Do you speak any other languages? Like, what other languages do you hear around your community? I I am ashamedly <laughs> very English uh, speaking. I don't have, but my coworkers in my job uh, at Citizens Advice all have these lists of extra languages they speak, like Punjabi and Hindi and Gujarati and Arabic. Um, and then I'm put to shame by being like, I can speak maybe conversational level Czech. That's about as good as it gets. Check. So, that's interesting. Cool. It does the job. Uh, yeah. So I lived there for a little while, but Lester brought me home after not too long. Very cool. I can, I'm not that much better. I'm an American. And as the stereotype goes, I can only really speak English and a little bit of Italian. So ah, that'll get you by. So let's introduce the story, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. What is the elevator pitch? Uh, so Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters, is published in 1980, and it tells the story of a teenage intellectual and the various problems besetting his life at that time, including but not limited to his parents separating, him getting bullied, him falling in love, him having to deal with hormones and puberty and other kids and other people and the horrors of volunteering with the elderly but <laughs> he makes all of these events documented in a very unique uh funny voice in which he has no self-awareness for how important he thinks he is and how badly he's handling most of the situations he's kind of like bridget jones but a teenage boy he's kind of like samuel peeps but with no higher brain function um but that character allows us to see everything from a different perspective, a very honest perspective uh, that could only come from a teenager and provide a little bit of comfort to people going through their teenage years and those awkward, difficult times. And is this written in first person or third person? It's all in first person. Um, So the existence of this woman in her 30s writing the book is surprising when you read it because it feels like you've discovered like a historical source uh, it's very, very believably a teenage boy. And why this story now? Why are we talking about this 1980s classic in 2021? I think it's it's a bit, to say it's timeless seems like a cliche, but it is a bit of a timeless way of telling a story to use a diary 
Um, and whilst some of its themes and ideas are very much within the 1980s, its understandings of things like class, uh, especially and British society, then you can also see something that would have existed in 1980, 2020, 1850, which is what it's like to be feeling like you're all alone when you're a teenager and how puberty in particular really exacerbates that, that you seem to be the only person going through this strange body horror when everybody else <laughs> seems to be handling it and you're not. Adrian Mole also wasn't handling it and maybe him feeling alone and you feeling alone is something you can have in common with each other as you reckon with your own puberty. I also think Townsend does not really get enough credit. So when I was asked about like a story close to home to tell, then she deserves more than just to be considered a fictional journalist writing for Thatcherism. She is a really, really talented writer. She was a real voice of a generation. And to be able to reflect on her fairly, I think I think there's just every opportunity to do that is a good one. So to talk about her would have been another big reason why I think this story should be told now. Well, I'm really excited to get into it. So without further ado, can you please begin the telling of our tale with my favorite phrase, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a teenager uh, who was living in Leicester. That teenager was interchangeably Adrian Mole or Sue Townsend or Luke Blaylock or a few other people as well, probably. Uh, <laughs> it was a kid who had dreams of becoming a great writer, a voice of a generation resounding all over the world as this famous person and celebrated master of the human condition. Um, but the writer is not a good writer and once upon a time this writer decided to try and start way before they were ready to write and they just needed a few life experiences I guess to find out what was worth talking about. So Adrian's life started out pretty mundane um, opening on New Year's Day of 1980 he was just about to get a library card and open up the world of classical literature. Uh, Sue Townsend did the same thing at about the same age in the 60s. I had been a library card holder all my life, but Borders um, was was my haven at that time. I don't know if you remember uh, that bookshop. Rest in peace, Borders. R.I.P. They were good people. They just couldn't handle the you've got male age, I guess. Tom so, Hanks putting everyone out of business. Yeah, let's blame him. <laughs> <laughs> so Adrian, on his own story the main thing that he was dealing with was the unrealized fact that his mother was having an affair with the next door neighbor and his parents were arguing about it every night and his dad was under threat of losing his job and um, all Adrian knows is that them keeping him up late is playing havoc with his acne and so <laughs> Adrian decides to get out of the house so he, he goes to volunteer uh, for the old people around the community and gets lumped with this nasty old communist called Bert Baxter and finds that his hopes of meeting some kindred spirit have been quashed by this gross old man with his smelly old dog. And <laughs> so things aren't really working out, but maybe at school things will work out for him. But even then, everything seems to be going wrong. Barry Kent, uh, the school bully, has started to bully him and take all his money. And uh, Pandora Braithwaite, the girl who sits next to him in geography, 
has started to give him strange feelings in the depths of his stomach. And uh, everything seems like it might be going wrong. But if you check out one of these diary entries, you can kind of see things are starting to, the wheels are starting to come into motion. So we'll read you here from uh, February the 14th, the Valentine's Day diary. All right, let's go. February 14th. Only got one Valentine's Day card. It was in my mother's handwriting, so it doesn't count. My mother had a massive card delivered. It was a big satin elephant holding a bunch of flowers, and in its trunk was a bubble saying, Hi, honey bun, I ain't never going to forget you. There was no name inside the card except for my mother's, and it was covered in hearts. But my father got a card, and it was very small, and it had some purpose flowers written in it that said, Let's try again. I wrote a card to Pandora, and here's the poem I wrote in it. Pandora, I adore you. I implore you. Don't ignore me. <laughs> that's that's his kind of voice. That he he writes a lot of poetry, and it's all awful. It was going so well until like the last line. <laughs> he just drops it. It's like a baton falling at the last hurdle. Oh <laughs> no! Come on. And he's really keen on this poem, and he thinks it's going to change her heart. But uh, he finds out she got seventeen Valentine's Day cards. And uh, he only got one from his mum. But he does consider a silver lining here, that he got a letter of rejection from the BBC's John Tideman, who's a real, real-life person that is written in the book because he's the guy that Sue Townsend sent her Adrian Moore manuscript to and approved of her work. Just like Adrian, Sue Townsend hand-wrote it, and he was like, this is almost unreadable. But if you edit it, we could get something from that. So he sent, like, a one of his poems to John Tideman and he wrote back? Yes, that's right. It's not Pandora I Adore Ya. It's, oh, okay. um, it's one called The Tap, uh, which is dead symbolic as he describes it. Which is, um, of course. Dad, fix a washer, don't be a burk. Why are you letting it drip while you go to work? I mean, He's transcends crazy. generations and time. Absolutely. It's beautifully it's written. Just, what will we do without the great voices and he's he's just lifting us up but John Tideman very sweetly writes back to him saying like oh thanks for trying um you're not gonna get on the radio with this our classic series usually reserved for you know people who have already died uh, but you you can you can try again anytime and Adrian considers this better than any Valentine's card absolutely I love it it's going one silver lining for him um but it's not really gonna cut the mustard with the rest of his life because we see that uh, on the 29th of March, Adrian's parents and Mr. Lucas, the next door neighbor, will try and meet up for a civilized discussion. But uh, George, Adrian's dad, and Mr. Lucas end up having a punch up in the front garden and they run away. George le- gets left with Adrian and the mum and Mr. Lucas run away to Sheffield together. Oh, no. That's and it's horrible. interesting that this is where it actually does get to some away from the comedy some more raw emotional fact is is that you can see the toll it's taking on adrian to live for the next few months without his mum. that's really the core of the kind of books uh high drama is how is he going to get his mom to come home gosh so just first for clarity his mom is pauline and his dad is george and pauline kind of left the story and now it's going to be adrian and george are two major characters that's right. Uh, so Pauline's run away with Mr. Lucas to Sheffield. And um, George, who has never really been much of a homely dad, 
is left to raise Adrian on his own. Oh boy. So it's difficult. It's very difficult for George to manage. He keeps missing bills. He can't iron clothes. Uh, Adrian's um, growth is not, he's not growth spurting because he's just eating boil in the bag rice all the time. Things get pretty much bad to worse because then despite his ardor, uh, he is fully aware of his ugliness and Pandora starts going out with his best friend. Oh no! And I th- I love how this gets to that very familiar 13-year-old of like, well, no wonder my best friend and Pandora are going out. Everything else in my life's going wrong. So it might as yeah. well have the worst things happen all at once. When you're 13, the highs are like higher than a kite and the lows are just the pit of despair. There's never a middle ground ever. Absolutely. And this, this book captures that in a very familiar way that it, it lets it build up bit by bit problem by problem until Adrian just can't handle any of it. So eventually, what do you do when you can't handle anything? Um, Adrian Mole, Sue Townsend and Luke Blaylock all do the same thing. Um, They call their grandma. So on the uh, 1st of May, then Adrian and George go to stay at his grandma's safe haven of a house where they get meat meals every day but they have to keep their elbows off the table of course and she decides to uh butt in with the issues that he's having so she pays off the bills and she hears about the bully and uh i think this is a another extract that i think is worth reading this is from the 21st of may My grandma found out about the menacing. My father didn't want her to know on account of her diabetes, but she listened to it all, and then she put her hat on, thinned her lips out, and went out. She was gone for an hour, then she came in, fluffed her hair out, and took out £27.18 from her auntie Mugger's belt. She said, He won't bother you again, Adrian, but if he does, let me know. Then she got tea ready with some pilchards, tomatoes, and ginger cake, and I bought her a box of diabetic chocolates as a token of my esteem. (laughs) Grandma saves the day. Grandmas do that. Grandmas have a great knack of just knowing exactly what you need when you need it. Shout out to my grandma too. Absolutely. And there is no greater fearful idea if you were a 13-year-old bully than an old woman in her Sunday best coming and demanding (laughs) the money back. Absolutely sold it there. I love it. Oh my goodness. Grandma's now. So for once, things are starting to tick. Uh, Things are starting to fall back into place. And... um, Adrian allows himself to go home, but his dad still hasn't really got the knack of how to be a good dad. This is where one of the most famous sequences in the book comes in. Uh, Adrian, feeling a bit like his dad doesn't care about this sort of stuff, decides he's going to wear red socks instead of regulation black socks in his school uniform. And uh, he's immediately sent home from school for an act of revolutionary aggression against the headmaster. So the... uh, Funny thing about this is it's actually based on Sue Townsend, who used to do this herself. She used to wear like one orange, one green sock when she knew she was going to have double maths. And then she knew the teachers would send her home to change and then she could miss two lessons. Ah, that's how you work the system. That's Absolutely how- games it. Completely not even trying to be a revolutionary like Adrian is. She's just a self-seeking bad at maths kid but it made its way in (laughs) that's incredible so adrian gets home and then uh pandora braithwaite knocks at his door 
And the beautiful keen young socialist says, Adrian, I know that you are a revolutionary at heart, wearing red socks as you did. And I thought it was so brave and so impressive. And I, I would really love to join your protest. And I was wondering if you'd like to come around my house uh, for coffee and a discussion about your principles. Uh, and then Adrian is like, yes, of course. So he goes <laughs> to the rich neighborhood uh, over to where she lives. And her parents are like giving him coffee and offering him uh, classical books about revolutionaries, like the ragged trousers of philanthropist. And he finds out that a bunch of other people are there too, which puts a bit of a damper on his intentions. But they all agree that they should all protest against uniform by all wearing red socks um, to the next week of school. And they march into the playground arm in arm. And Adrian feels Pandora's arms tucked in against his <laughs> elbow and he feels the fireworks ignite inside him just so desperately in love. Well, if he wasn't a revolutionary before, he definitely is now. <laughs> this will spur him on. This is his indicting moment when he's going to finally turn the tables. And it works exactly as it planned. All of them get suspended for a week. And it doesn't take long before reflecting on this. Pandora returns Adrian's affections. So I've got another entry for that. That's Wednesday the 10th of June. Pandora and I are in love. It's official. She told Claire Nielsen, who told Nigel, who told me. So I told Nigel to tell Claire to tell Pandora that I return her love and I'm over the moon with joy and rapture. I can overlook the fact Pandora smokes Benson and Hedges and has her own lighter. When you're in love, such things cease to matter. <laughs> um, that is so funny. I love the, the line of telephone that goes into that confession because... Isn't that always the way? Yeah, you can't say it. I, you couldn't bear to say it directly to someone. You have to find some way of softening the blow through like friends of friends of friends. Of course. And Benson and Hedges, are those cigarettes? Is that like a cigarette brand? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, okay. it's, I would say it's expensive enough that it makes sense that a, a posh teenager is smoking them. Okay, okay. I can remember I used to have similar sort of tricks that um, rather than telling anyone about how I felt about them when I was a kid, if I had a crush, I used to um, tell my friends about it. But even that was a bit too unnerving. So I used to, uh, this was back in the days when you could take the batteries out of your mobile. I used to <laughs> start sending the message, panic, and then take the battery out of my mobile fast enough that it wouldn't send until I was ready to muster up the courage to tell people. <laughs> That's a good trick. I just think we would just gossip about it. And then you're like, you can't tell anybody. You can't tell anybody. This story does not leave this room. And then obviously it always did. And it would cause some sort of some sort of eighth grade drama or pandemonium. Absolutely. Secrets are made to be turned into dramas. That's why Absolutely. we tell stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how we can all connect to each other. So <laughs> spreading our secrets. What else is this podcast about after all? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> All right, so what does what does Adrian do next? What happens in his story? Uh, so he introduces Pandora to his world. Um, she meets his dad and she meets the old communist Burt Baxter who um, really takes a shine to her. Um, but then uh, Burt Baxter's health kind of worsens over the course of the next few months and he's sent away to an old people's home. 
And while he's in the, the care home, there's a lot of kind of reflections on the issue of when the council, when the government take old people away to care homes with no one to speak for them. And the old people are all really miserable there. And Adrian's thinking, how can I get Bert out of here? And uh, he's just so powerless to stop him being there. And um, he doesn't know what to do. And Pandora doesn't even know what to do. And, you know, she's all connected and powerful. And uh, this sort of starts to manifest in more health problems for him where he feels like his puberty is is, is all up in the fritz. And he <laughs> ends up having to have his tonsils removed um, just because he, he gets an infection. But this is our our finale of the story, Adrian having his tonsils removed, really. Um, he's oh. He's thinking that it's a very serious operation that might kill him. And of course. He's, he's agreed to go to hospital and take the operation, but he's sent, you know, goodbye letters to everyone he knows uh, in case he doesn't make it out, including his mom, who didn't know it was a tonsil operation. So this finally brings his mom home from Sheffield. Oh, my gosh. And just as he's slipping into um, the medically induced gas and air coma, um, then he gives her his diary and he says, Mom, don't read it and don't let anybody else read it. And uh, when he wakes up, both of his parents are at the bedside together again. So Adrian seems to have things just about back and things start to kind of tie up as well. So... Bert Baxter uh, falls in love at the care home and that creates a nice little loophole in um, legal senses that if you're a couple, you're much more likely to be allowed to live together without a care home. So he takes his new wife that he's known for all of about three months back to the old smelly house and Bert Baxter can live at home again with a full-time carer. So Adrian doesn't have to be his carer anymore. He can just be his friend and uh, now that the family are all back together, it looks like everything's sorted and Adrian is riding high. And so, of course, when one is riding high and one is 14, one gets a wandering eye. And Adrian starts to have a chat to a girl called Barbara Boyer, who hates Pandora and is like, ah, oh, you know, she's got a lot of bad qualities. And Adrian's like, ah, oh, you are kind of right. And he finds himself discussing poetry and short stories with this girl, Barbara, and uh, he tells Nigel, just like you were saying, it will not leave the room sworn to secrecy. <laughs> Nigel immediately pells Pandora to try and get back together with Pandora. And a little um, snitch. Pandora immediately breaks up with Adrian. And it looks like we were so close to a solution. And now things are falling apart. And so here's the last day, the last entry of the diary, April the 3rd. Right. 8 a.m. Britain's at war with Argentina. I woke up my father to tell him Argentina invaded the Falklands. He shot out of bed because he thought the Falklands was on the coast of Scotland. When I pointed out they were actually 8,000 miles away, he got back into bed, pulled the covers over his head and told me to leave him alone. 4 p.m. I've just had the worst experience of my life. It started when I began to assemble a nice model aeroplane. I'd nearly finished when I thought I would try an experimental sniff of the glue. I put my nose into the undercarriage and inhaled for five seconds. Nothing spiritual happened, but my nose got stuck to the plane. My father took me to casualty to have it removed, and I enjoyed a lot of laughing and sniggering. I rang up Pandora, and she felt so bad to hear about it that she's coming round after her viola lesson. Love is the only thing that keeps me sane. (laughs) Oh, so they got back together in the end after all. 
all it took was him to go to casualty for about 20 minutes and she was ready to run back to him. She loves the crisis, our Pandora. <laughs> ready for it. Incredible. And that's the end of it. That's amazing. I love, um, and I see it in this and it kind of reminds me of maybe a show like Dairy Girls. Um, if anyone's seen Dairy yes. Girls, it's on Netflix, where it says, let's get this really big historical moment that's happening right now. But the more important story is I sniffed glue and it went horribly. And, yes. I, <laughs> and I feel like that's like a really great representation of just life. Like, oh, this is a really big event. Um, but also, do you want to hear my grocery store adventure? Because that's way more relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's more easy to talk about. And it's it's a helpful lens in which to frame something really big. Like we don't have a way to talk about big things, but we know how to talk about the small things. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's a good reminder. I, I don't know. There's always people talking nowadays, you see it online, TikTok or whatever, like, I'm so tired of living through historical events. And it's, you know, we've always lived through historical events, but it's how we talk about it. And what are you going to take from it? What are you going to remember? That's what makes it, I don't know, easier to bear, easier to kind of comprehend. But no, I agree. I agree with you. Like, um, Adrian's later stories will go through every historical touchstone from 1980 to about 2009 to the market crash oh wow and in each instance it's it's kind of like in lord of the rings when frodo says i wish i'd never been picked to hold the ring i wish it hadn't come to me and gandalf says well so does everyone who lives to see such a time as this but that's not Mm. for us to decide we have to decide what to do with the time we've been given absolutely and you can you can worry about the fact that you're living through a stressful time or you can enjoy the fact that you might become a talking head one day on a documentary and be like, here's what I was doing when the world nearly ended. I Absolutely. Got to write it all down too. Write it down. Remember, make sure you absolutely. remember Absolutely. Write it all down. It could be an Adrian Mole. It could be a Gilgamesh. It could be anything in between. Absolutely. Before we get on to the adaptations of this, of this story, have you ever, just let me think of it, on Netflix, there's a series, I don't know if it's still on, I'll have to double check, called The Mortified Guides. Have you heard of that? Mortified Guides? I haven't, no. It's basically a series. There's a movie, and then there's a series. It's nonfiction, and it's people um, who read their childhood diaries in front of people, like a stand-up show, except instead of comedy, they're reading their diaries or their fan fiction that they wrote in like 2009 and it's hysterical Um, (laughs) and so painful to listen to i very reluctantly keep my like young diaries and things that i wrote when i was a teenager because i'm hoping no one will see it but me but that one Mm -hmm. day i'll have a soft enough heart that i can read them again and be like ah well they were not not the worst thing ever (laughs) (laughs) I I uh, do you write in a journal or anything now. I kind of pick it up now and then, um, especially with the way that time has been such a strange shape in the last eighteen months with the lockdowns and stuff. Then I wanted to like write about stuff, but I never wanted to find the right energy at the right time. So there'll be like a six-page-long entry for one day, and then nothing for about six months. This is how it goes. I got a line a day journal. And I just like, write a sentence every day. And it's always funny when I see things right before you know, the pandemic started and like 
February 2020 and just being like, this is the stupidest thing. Like, I can't believe they're canceling my swing dancing class. It's so frustrating. <laughs> For just and another then, flu. <laughs> yeah, it's so annoying. Yeah. And then like go to three weeks later and just like to see the progression of, oh no, like this is real. But also, did you watch Tiger King? And just like all the little, the little <laughs> yeah. things that make up our lives. Speaking of things that we watch and enjoy to help our time and life go by a little bit easier. So Adrian Mole, after its first book, kind of took on a life of its own. So can you talk a little bit about the show and the movie and the musical and everything that it turned into? Yeah, yeah. Um, It was very quickly picked up for the TV rights, um, which Sue Townsend wrote. Um, as well and it got Julie Walters uh, who people might know is in Mamma Mia and it got a guy called Jan Sakamo to play Adrian who was an excellently like lanky ugly looking lad Um, and then they wrote the second book after the first TV show and then the second TV show immediately after so the first two books uh, Secret Diary and Growing Pains really function as as one big story told um very quickly and sequentially together um i won't tell you anything about growing pains because i don't want to spoil it uh, you should you should read it but it's it's a very similar time in his life and it's a really great tv show to because when you're telling a story like this then you kind of need to tell it in episodic ways with here was one big day every few months and here's a few things that happen in between and it, it's also got a lot of nice shots of Leicester. Like it's set in the Leicester council estates and um, it looks pretty good. Leicester never gets onto film at all. So to just see like shots of recognizable places is, is really cool. But there's one problem I have with it though, which is um, it uses the wrong accents. Uh, n- none of them have Leicester accents. Oh, and no. I I get why they did that decision is because it's difficult for an accent coach to learn an accent that doesn't have much recognition. And if people on TV are watching this on TV, they would not know a Leicester accent when they heard one anyway, because it's not a very well-known or big or recognizable one. And the closest big city is Birmingham. So they make them all sound like they're from Birmingham, but it's wrong. No one talks like that here. Just for point of reference, if anybody watches the show, we don't sound like that. So do you have a Leicester accent? A bit. I My parents, neither of my parents are from here. And um, they influence my voice quite a bit. And a lot of like television has as well. Uh, I have a bit of a Leicester cadence with, for example, the word for a place you go for education and the word for the bone in your head for me will be very similar. That's school and skull instead of school and skull. Can you do your best to just give the people a frame of reference? Can you give your best accent of your of your town? Like what if you went to Leicester, what would it sound like walking down the street? Okay, so like let's say you find like a person who has never left the county uh and is, you know, an old person who's lived there for a long time. They would probably sound a bit like um Oh well, that's really all there is to it. I go to the foot of our stairs like they surprised me I did. How much is it anyway? Which means I was surprised by that, but I owe you some money. How much do I owe you? (laughs) 
I understood every word. Yep, totally. Great, great. <laughs> yeah. And I think if we'd had a show like that, no one would have understood any of it. You needed subtitles for it. <laughs> it's, yes. yeah, it's got the kind of slight southern cadences like you get with Cockneys, where it's all a bit of back, but also the northern mm-hmm. things like bath and path instead of bath and path. So it's a bit of a mix. England has a lot of different accents, right? Yeah, I think because it's such an old um, state with with a singular state control, but not much connection county to county for so much of its history, then what other places would have made into dialects we've made into accents. So Nottingham, which is like just 30 miles north of Leicester, has a slightly different accent. They'd say church and we'd say church. Um and if you go slightly 30 miles west, you get to Birmingham, where they say doubt and we say don't and that kind of thing. So there's there's noticeable little differences, even just 30 miles away each direction. That's really cool. I mean, there's accents, obviously, in, in the States as well, but there's it's, the distinctions are definitely not as as strong. The coolest thing for me was so listeners know I'm from Baltimore and listening to the hairspray the 2007 hairspray uh with zach efron and john travolta oh john yeah that's set in baltimore isn't it yes yeah the opening number good morning baltimore yeah. absolutely kind of sets you firmly in the location um they uh john travolta attempts a baltimore accent and it's it's funny because it's not like very good but since so few people ever attempt to try a baltimore accent like anywhere on because it's just like not a very i love i love baltimore but it's not the most pleasing accent to listen to it was just really fun to like great attempt you tried you did your best yeah Yeah, good for good for having a go (laughs) is that what that is a baltimore accent i thought it was just like bonged up nose (laughs) no (laughs) no you tried a baltimore accent baltimore accent's very like i can't even do a good one but like baltimore i guess that's Baltimore accent or ba- Baltimore. Good, ba- Baltimore, like go down to the ocean. Oh, that was bad. I can't do it. I can't, <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it unless I'm like in the mood in like in Baltimore, like talking to people anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, they made this TV show and it was, mm, but then they kept making book after book after book. So Su Townsend made uh, books in the nineties, in the noughties, and she was writing other stuff as well. But, um, the books were still being, you know, well read. They were still bestsellers all the way through that time as Adrian and the cast around him kept growing and changing in these very predictable, but also very unexpected directions. So like George, the dad, he's pretty much the same, but Pauline, the mom becomes like a radical feminist, really engages with the campaign for nuclear disarmament um, nice. and writes her own memoirs uh, and Pandora, I think she, spoiler alert for all this, by the way, uh, should have said that earlier. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Pandora becomes uh, one of Tony Blair's female MPs when Tony Blair got like over 100 new women in the government and uh, really cozies up to like loads of people in the seats of government. And she thinks she's going to be set up to be the prime minister, but it all predictably just gets her put to one side because she's a woman from the Midlands and even though she's got loads of competency, she's really smart and she's really cutthroat, then she never quite makes it. Mm. Um, Adrian himself, he ends up having a, a very wild life uh, with like three kids by three different women. Oh. Uh, 
none of them Pandora. <laughs> Tragic. Keeps trying to get her back. Keeps writing to John Tideman, trying to get his stuff published. Um, and, you know, keeps supporting Burt Baxter and supporting uh, the kind of people around him, but never really getting any recognition for it. And just living quite a quite a wild life, but at the same time, quite a humble and normal one. He never becomes famous or, like, important. He just gets on with things. Wow. That's kind of a roller coaster, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. He's, he's, and I guess this is inevitable when you're writing for a story that has to have a finale at each ending and, you know, has to have exciting stuff happen all the time. Then Adrian has to have big deal things happen to him every 10 years when a new book comes out. So a lot goes on for him um, over the course of these different books. And uh, again, tying into key events like Tony Blair coming to power, like the Iraq war, like the crash of 2008. Wow. And one more, one more big thing to talk about is uh, the Adrian Moore musical. Yes. I was listening to it a little bit before we started recording. Very it's, groovy. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really cute and catchy it's made in the same uh theatrical workshops that sue townsend made her first plays um and it was all you know like composed by lester people with lester accents they actually have a bit now and then of like a lester accent and the lester cadence to them so we do come full circle by the 2010s hey. and we get what we were after and um it becomes uh, a London West End musical for a while. It's no longer, it, it closed, uh, but it the playbook's been quite well received in like touring and it might come back to Leicester again. It's a, yeah, it's a nice musical that manages to keep the teenage excess and height of emotion because it's a musical, but also have a very British tradition of musicals about working class people living their kitchen sink dramas. So it's a bit Billy Elliot and a bit Blood Brothers and a bit Full Monty and Kinky Boots and that kind of thing as well. Awesome. Well, hopefully once more theater opens up as slowly but surely it is, we get to see a production of Adrian Mole. Maybe they could bring it to the States. Who knows? Yeah, they could They could take it to like Broadway. Why not? If, um, if, if Hamilton can come to the West End, Adrian Mole can come to Broadway. <laughs> Exactly. Oh my goodness. So obviously Adrian Mole has lived a lot of lives for the past 40 odd years. I mean, obviously it's about, you know, growing up and it's based in your hometown, but how else does this story connect to you? Why was this the story that you wanted to talk about today in terms of being close to home? Yeah. Um, I think it's, really something about puberty and the experience of puberty as a man um, and as a more feminine man uh, as well. So male puberty, for the female listeners who don't know, is not an, not an enjoyable experience for most boys because masculinity demands conformity and uniformity so much. So if you're all in a changing room, and one guy says, oh, I've just experienced this puberty milestone, then there is a moment where all the other lads will try and decide if they outrank him and can say, what a weirdo, that doesn't happen. 
or if he outranks them. And they all then have to say, me too, at the exact same time. And that is a really isolating thing because no two people are experiencing this weird growth of your body and your mind and your chemical makeup in the same way. But all of us are trying to say that we are. So everybody has to lie all the time. Everybody feels really out of their own skin all the time. And uh, if you're feminine, like me or Adrian, then it's even worse because it's changing in a direction that you are not good at. And uh, Adrian doesn't perform his masculinity very well. I definitely didn't. Um, Not that I perform my femininity much better. And so Adrian's story of his puberty and his growth, when I read it when I was about 15, was really important to show that I was not the only one who was the only one. I was not the only person going through a unique experience and feeling isolated and lying about it. Everybody is alone. Everybody is isolating. And that's maybe the most we have in common. Yeah. So having opinions about and feelings about his experience of puberty was allowed to happen. And I was allowed to do it too. And writing about those things was allowed to happen for Adrian. So it was allowed for me too. So the character represents for me a real acceptance and a real release of truth about what it is to to grow up and become a man uh, in the physical sense. And very interesting, like even more so that it had such a profound effect on you. And it was also like written by a woman who was talking about the, the male experience, which is kind of the opposite, I would say, of a lot of literature that we get. A lot of times it's a kind of a man writing about like the female experience. It is. And I don't know what tricks she used. She had um, two sons and she was a youth worker for a lot of teenage boys, but I don't know what tricks she used to really get in our heads and know <laughs> us in ways that like really famous people who've grown up now uh, talk about reading Adrian Moore when they were kids and being like, oh, wow, this woman gets me when they were boys. And she just had a an incredible knack for getting under your skin like that with that voice. And apparently she does this in the in the female voice for stories like The Queen and I and Woo Morang and The Celestial Cow as well. But I can't really speak for them. I can't wait to like watch one of these adaptations now. I'm like really like, looking forward to just seeing this. That's really interesting. I'd say it's uh, if you want to watch the TV show, that's probably the most faithful adaptation. The play is the most excitingly you know easy to digest um the book is also really easy and quick to read as well so you can you can plow through that in a week awesome is there anything else that connected you to the to the theme of close to home any other experiences that really like oh no this was this is what it was like being 13 14 years old yeah uh he's he's so me in ways that when i was reading it i was like oh no am i the idiot um so he's he's from Leicester and he is sort of resentful of the fact that he's from this fairly provincial middle of England city and he's got this you know grandma who's his who's his haven who he can kind of escape to and he's got this sense that things are too busy for him and I I had a grand I had two grandmas like that um and I had a a similar experience to him like that also he's in love with this girl who's like 
beyond his station and above his social class. And I had a, a long thing over that with, with a girl that I really liked that was like a bit more of a social class scale than I was. And Adrian got with the girl long before I did, uh, but that's <laughs> by the by. And the main one is he thought he was the voice of a generation and uh-huh. he ended up having to resign himself to the fact that he might not be, but he didn't stop him writing. And I made a big shift in about 2018-2019 to accept the fact that I was not going to become a writer which I have wanted to be since I was 13 and I had written not enough and nothing good enough at any point between the age of 13 and the age of 24 to make it and I was like either I can keep trying and seriously try and not half-ass it or I can try and think why am I doing this and the conclusion of that was to go into um, this this new role I have now my job now with uh, supporting people on benefits and voluntary work I do supporting people who are vulnerable and realizing that actually my value is found not in other people recognizing my voice but in being able to be someone else's voice and if that is not what Sue Townsend was about nothing was. Wow, that was wonderfully profound. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's been on my mind a lot since I've been researching this. Like, what did Sue Townsend mean? What what mattered to her? What was she trying to do? And that, yeah, like being the voice for other people and trying to find a way to use her talents to advocate for people. That's that's what she loved to do. And it's it's a real inspiration. If you can do that, do it because especially if you're if you're um a boy then your voice is already loud enough other people have already got that covered and and you can use your platform for other people and you can you can use it to support other people who are trying to get themselves out there and figure out who they are what an awesome way that you can connect to a book that you read in childhood one of my favorite parts of this season of the podcast is really seeing how much literature, especially childhood literature, impacts how we view the world as adults. And if I've learned anything this season, it's that so many of our core values that we carry as grown-ups come from what we admired in the books and the movies that we watched or read as children. And I think that's something really interesting and, um, I don't know, important. I don't know if it's important to the world, but I think it's important to recognize in yourself. So... Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you. I, I think it is important to be able to know where you're coming from and to be able to say, if if growing up me and teenage me sat down with each other, would teenage me be impressed with growing up me? Would would they be seeing uh, that I am like the people that they like? Am I like the characters that they want me to emulate and want to grow into? Or have I gone in a different direction? And also, would I care? Should I be beholden to um, all of my childhood dreams? Um, mm-hmm. Or should I just take only the the parts that were going to inspire and grow and, you know, help me and not the parts that are going to hold me back? Because yeah. we can't all be, you know, prodigy uh, <laughs> Anne of Green Gables rising up to the most powerful positions in head teachers. But <laughs> right. we can be Adrian Mole and we can keep writing and we can keep dreaming. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's no slant on Anne of Green Gables, by the way. Uh, I love her. I do I too. Love that <laughs> and you know what? You know what's crazy too? Like Anne grows up and she teaches for a while and follows her dreams, but then she decides, like, she marries Gilbert. They get a house. They have a lot of kids, and then it's the story of her children. And it's this cyclical, cyclical yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how time passes and everything changes, but really everything stays the same. So, do you have anything you want to say to really wrap up the story of Sue Townsend and Adrian Mole, or anything you want to promote or anything you want to talk about before we conclude? I think I should um, just talk a bit more about Sue's own life um, to kind of bring it full circle so some of her life was parallel to Adrian's uh not all of it and she died following a stroke at the age of 68 in 2014 um and she had been working on another Adrian Moore book at the time as well as a couple of other projects uh but she had left behind her a body of work centered around Adrian Moore but including books about the royal family plays about um teen mums and stories, essays, journal articles, loads and loads of work. And this is a woman who was born in Leicester, grew up working in manual labor, married at the age of 18, had three kids by the age of 22, and was divorced at 25. And for the next 15 years, just lived as a single mom and never published a word of her work. But she wrote all the time in secret, Uh, usually like in the middle of the night. And then when she was 36 and she found herself a new boyfriend who supported her, um, then she made her plays and she made her diary of Adrian Mole and John Tideman uh, found it and loved it. And she managed to um, get that published and since then managed to rise in power, in wealth, but was still living in Leicester. Uh, she, She said when she was a kid, if I grow up and become rich and famous, I'm going to live in Stony Gate. Yeah, she didn't want to move to London or Paris. She wanted to live in the slightly fancier bit of town um, about a borough away from where she was originally living. Oh, that's so sweet. She was a completely sincere and genuine writer all the way up to the end of her life. She still was connected to the working class culture she came from, and she was still connected to understanding how politics uh, creates poverty and criminalizes and disregards poverty and also how it manages to control marginalized groups and because she knew how that hurts and what it's like to be poor and to be on the edge and to be a single mom on benefits with three kids then she knew how to behave when she changed that life and became rich and used that privilege to platform people who had no voice until she couldn't walk and to see people that everyone was ignoring until she went blind. And I I just really do want to shout out to, you know, people that she deserves all the highest honors, all the widest readership, and she deserves to, to be known now that she's ended her race. Wow. Well, what a full circle moment that is. Um, thank you so much for sharing Sue's Townsend story and the story that she created 
this has been a really fun conversation. So thank you so much for coming on again. It's been really nice to, um, uh, you know, like go through go through my teenage years and go through other people's and go through something really fun that's that's got this, you know, power to it. But it's still it's, it's a fun time to be alive. It's good to talk about. <laughs> Being 13 is something you only do once, and boy, is it a roller coaster. Uh, when I want to go back, but it's fun looking, it's fun looking <laughs> At back. At least sometimes. it happened. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going back, but no. No, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you so much, Luke. Is there anything else before we officially sign off? Final chance? Anything you want to say? Anything you want to promote? Put out there in the universe? Uh, yes, if you want to read The Secret Diary of Adrian Moll, um, then you can, of course, buy real paper copies of it. You can also get PDFs, but a great place to buy it from is my mate's bookshop, a Leicester local independent bookshop, Fox Books Limited. They will send you it uh, by delivery, and I'm sure that they can figure out ways to send it to all you people listening all over the world. Sorry, Ian. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. We always love to support uh, local bookstores. That's wonderful. And I'll put a link to that in our show notes so we can all can all get there and support the bookstore. Thank you so much, Thanks, Luke. Too. Thank you, Talia. Great to be back again and uh, great to be part of a season all about home. Really makes me smile. <laughs> I'm glad. Me too. Until next time. See you soon. Just a little postscript after this episode, I wanted to give a major shout out to the 8th graders I worked with this semester in fall 2021. It's hard to believe, but between the recording of this episode and its release, I actually had the joy of working with 8th graders on a field trip project um, and taking them to one of DC's uh, museums. Through that process, I got to relive the epic highs and the devastating lows of being 13, and it reminded me of what life was like nearly 11 years ago for myself. I think it gave me a, a greater appreciation for the story of Adrian Mole, and I feel very honored that I got to be part of their 13-year-old story. And I want to leave you with this. One of my students came up to me in the middle of the semester and said, Miss Smith, I'm really sad you're only here for a semester because you really get us. You really get what it's like to be 13. You ask about our days and you care about our answers. And while I was totally flattered and overwhelmed with, with feeling loved and appreciated by 13-year-olds, how I always wanted to feel when I myself was 13, I took a step back, and I thought when I was alone, Oh dear, do I really relate that much to being 13? That's not good as I'm 24. But you know, I think inside, we're all 13. While we may not express verbally those epic highs and those devastating lows, we feel them. And so this episode is dedicated to 13-year-olds and the 13-year-old in all of us. And now for the credits. Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast was produced by Talia Smith and Emily Joba. You can buy us a coffee to support this podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash onceuponatimepc. Our guest today was Luke Blaylock, and our story was The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, aged 13 and three quarters. Music is Heart of Acceptance by John Bartman. Our Instagram is at a storytelling podcast, and our email is a storytelling podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, too. 
You can listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Links to all of our resources are in the show notes and on our website. The end.